Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Some children's hospitals in California are struggling to find enough beds for babies and toddlers who have the respiratory illness RSV. Orange County declared a public health emergency weeks ago. And in Fresno County, the strain has extended to adult hospitals, already contending with a rise in COVID cases. Meantime, California is now among 10 states with the worst flu levels in the nation, according to CDC data. The state is facing the so-called triple-demic of flu, COVID, and RSV. And this hour, we look at its impact on people's lives and our healthcare system. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. RSV, or respiratory syncytial virus, is sending young kids, as well as older Californians, to hospitals, overwhelming emergency rooms in some parts of the state. Add to that, COVID cases are increasing, and flu levels here are among the highest in the nation. Dr. Erica Pon is California's epidemiologist and deputy director of the Center for Infectious Diseases at the state's health department. Dr. Pon, thank you for joining us. Sure, happy to be here. So from your view at the state level, which one of these three major viruses is having the biggest impact in terms of strain on hospitals? Sure. I think what's actually happening is uh, we're seeing kind of things evolve, and there are multiple respiratory viruses. Certainly, these three are some of the most important. Um, All of them are starting much earlier than we're used to seeing, and RSV started the earliest. Um, Thankfully, we think in most of the state that has actually peaked and starting to decrease, although still at high levels. But as you just mentioned, we are absolutely seeing um, early and high increases in flu, um, and COVID is definitely increasing again now. And there are many other winter respiratory viruses circulating as well. Those other many respiratory, winter respiratory viruses, are there any that we need to be aware of that really haven't gotten much attention that you are particularly concerned about? Well, I think what we really want people to pay attention to is that what they all have in common is what we can do to help prevent the spread of these different viruses. So they're all spread in various ways by, you know, people coughing. Um, So we want people to cover their coughs. We want people to stay at home when they're sick. Um, And thankfully, many of us who can work at home, uh, you know, really, I think hopefully there are many lessons learned that we can use during this winter uh, respiratory virus season to to prevent uh, more infections um, amongst our different most vulnerable populations. So as you mentioned, we've been seeing young infants and toddlers with RSV really Uh, overwhelming uh, pediatric clinics and hospitals, uh, and then again, flu and RSV and others. So there's, you know, many others. But again, I think 
um, staying out when you're sick, washing your hands well, really good hand hygiene, making sure you get tested for some of these if you are ill. So COVID-19, we know if you have early treatment, um, that can really help prevent hospitalization. And similarly with flu, if you are at risk for more serious flu illness. And we, of course, want people to get vaccinated and stay up to date on their vaccines for these viruses that we do have vaccines for. Yes, we're already hearing about hospitals being overwhelmed. And of course, fear of hospitals being overwhelmed by COVID triggered state masking mandates and so on. Do you think the state should bring any of those rules back? I think what we're really at this point now, again, knowing that there are multiple viruses circulating and multiple having an impact and, you know, flu is definitely having currently at least um, equal, if not more impact that we do think people should wear a mask indoors and we want to encourage people to, again, look at their own sort of risks and the, uh, the, their loved ones and what settings they're in, certainly in indoor public settings, indoor crowded settings. Uh, we definitely recommend wearing a mask during this winter uh, respiratory virus season right now. And certainly, I think knowing that infants, for example, are um, too young to wear masks, too young to be vaccinated. You know, wearing masks around young infants is really helpful. So we're absolutely encouraging people and empowering people. And that's really the important message right now. Mm. And is that basically the way that the state is planning to operate? Are you having conversations about actually bringing any of those rules back? Or are you planning to leave it to counties? Uh, well, we did issue many uh, weeks or months ago uh, and updated our mask guidance to help people look at these different levels of COVID transmission. And certainly those are put out by the CDC as well and following those. And as we see higher COVID transmission, certainly kind of strengthening those recommendations. Um, but again, I think what we're seeing is is not just COVID, but other viruses circulating. So looking, paying attention to what's happening in your community for all of those viruses is helpful to help empower communities. You raised the alarm about COVID-19 definitely being on the rise, seeing that in not just reported cases, but wastewater levels, testing of wastewater. What's the state's prediction with regard to COVID case and hospitalization rates in the coming weeks? Will it continue to rise? We do think uh, we are still in the upswing and, and the, the rise uh, of both COVID and flu and uh, watching that closely and continuing to update various projections. We are hopeful that based on current levels of, of severity that we're seeing, we, we again did see an increase in new admissions in the last couple of weeks, but we're hoping that um, this will still be a lower level than we've seen in, uh, for example, last winter surge. And we want to remind people again that we have different tools now that we didn't have before. One of the main tools that we didn't have last winter are um, easily available outpatient treatments. So again, especially those who are over 50, who have other medical problems, um, really should, if they do test positive for COVID, should seek treatment. And we really want providers to provide that treatment that really prevents hospitalizations as well. And you're not concerned about the supply of those treatments? That's not a worry right now for the state? Exactly. And thanks for asking that, because we do think many uh, of the public and providers still might have that misperception that this treatment is scarce. But we do have uh, plenty of supply now, and we are not utilizing it. There's not enough de demand right now, and we want to increase that again for people who could really benefit and prevent serious illness with COVID. And so just really quick with regard to hospitalizations, how concerned are you about what you're seeing in terms of hospitals being stretched right now? We Where are certainly 
Yeah, we are um, meeting with hospitals weekly. We've done some site visits in some of the children's hospitals across the state, and absolutely, hospitals are stretched. And of course, the biggest issue is really the staffing, um, especially uh, specialized staffing, whether that's pediatric staffing, especially in these recent weeks. Um, you know, historically, some of the staffing uh, shortages were in the intensive care unit, and after you know, three really tough years uh, for the healthcare workforce. Uh, that's the biggest constraint. I think many hospitals actually could have more beds and stretch their beds, but what we're really seeing is is strain on staffing. And what can the state do to deal with that, help hospitals deal with that? Uh, that is uh, definitely a challenge for all of us. I think we're helping remind uh, hospitals and providers about different tools they have to uh, be more flexible about how they can provide their care, what what they can do within those constraints. We're helping make sure there's a lot of just-in-time training, for example, for um, people that may not have taken care of younger patients more recently, uh, working a lot with uh, the different sort of regional and local um, uh what we call disaster medical health specialists to help coordinate care. And uh, and just there are a lot of different issues that we're kind of trying to hear and, and meeting with the hospitals frequently to hear what those different issues are. California State Epidemiologist Dr. Erica Pond. Dr. Pond, always appreciate having you on. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Take care. Joining me now is Dr. John Zweifler, a public health physician for Fresno County. And Fresno is really feeling... The triple threat of these viruses. Dr. Zweifler, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, happy to be here. So one of the things that we're hearing is that the strain from RSV cases has now extended to adult hospitals. What does that mean exactly? Well, as Dr. Pan noted, it's not just RSV that we're dealing with. It's also a very significant uh, outbreak of, uh, of influenza, uh, as well as a, as another surge in COVID. So all three of these are coming together as what you uh, noted is, is being called a, a triple-demic. So uh, certainly the RSV disproportionately impacts our, our youngest uh, 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 infants. So our, our pediatric hospitals are the ones that are, are dealing with the brunt of the RSV uh, uh, outbreak. But the flu and COVID, uh, as well as RSV, are impacting all of our other hospitals. Uh, and for those of us in the Central Valley, where there's, there's less capacity uh, across the board in terms of doctors, specialists, and uh, hospital beds, uh, it's uh, having a, a more serious impact than, uh, than even in other parts of the state. Right. It has a cascading effect when there's one illness that's taking up beds, regardless of what it is. I understand, Dr. Zeifler, to ease the burden on hospitals. Fresno health officials brought back a policy that limits when an ambulance will come and take you to an emergency room. Tell us about this, if you could. Okay, well, the, uh, you're referring to what's called the assess and refer policy, and this is something that uh, Fresno County has uh, implemented when uh, COVID was particularly severe. And uh, the idea of it is, is that when you call 911 and uh, to be transported by an ambulance, uh, the assess and refer policy gives the EMS uh, 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 providers some latitude in terms of evaluating your condition to determine whether or not it's a true emergency and, and whether it needs to go to the emergency room. Uh, so the EMS uh, uh, drivers and providers, uh, they're, they're very cautious, and so it, it, it doesn't really limit all the number of patients that are transported by a lot. 
uh, but it does uh, uh, provide a little bit of buffer uh, for our hospitals and our emergency rooms that are that are, are really struggling uh, with the the huge number of patients that are flooding into their facilities. And are they flooding in largely because of COVID? I saw a statistic that uh, COVID hospitalizations more than doubled since early November. Well, we're seeing a rapid rise uh, in COVID uh, and in flu. As Dr. Pan mentioned, flu is actually even a bigger driver than COVID at this moment, huh. uh, as well as the RSV. So RSV seems to be peaking, so that's good news. But the other two are definitely increasing, and projections are that it will increase throughout the month of December, which is really tough heading into the holiday season. We don't want to be worrying about whether we can get care if we go to the emergency room. Uh, and then with the holidays on top of that and the winter coming, you know, I think we can predict that December as well as well as January are likely to be tough times uh, for our emergency rooms. Huh. Why is flu so bad? So the CDC, CDC data put California as one of the top 10 states for flu activity right now or very high is the category. Well, I'm not an epidemiologist or virologist, but uh, you get waves uh, periodically. So there's uh, flu epidemics going on in uh, the Southern Hemisphere, in Europe, uh, around the world, across our country. Uh, so it just uh, hits periodically. Uh, uh, but this surge is a big one and uh, comparable to the last large one we had in 2017. So you had these overlapping uh, 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 surges that are all hitting at the same time. Uh, and even though COVID isn't isn't quite as dramatic as some of our earlier surges, when you combine it with the flu outbreak, it it means that particularly in in areas such as the Central Valley, where there's fewer hospital beds and uh, fewer and uh, less access uh, for emergency rooms, uh, it has a uh, disproportionate impact uh, on uh, on capacity. Dr. John Zweifler is public health physician for Fresno County Department of Public Health. We'll have more with him and with you, our listeners, after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the unusually high number of Californians with respiratory illnesses, RSV, flu, and COVID, and the impact it's having. It's actually being felt quite a bit in Fresno. And Dr. John Zweifler is public health physician for Fresno County. 
Doctors Weichler, before the break, we were talking about uh, the impact of the flu. And I remember last winter that Fresno County was also feeling the effects and feeling the effects longer of Omicron because of low vaccination rates. I'm wondering if vaccination rates are where you would like them to be for both flu and COVID. Well, the short answer is no. Uh, uh, we're below where we could and should be in both those areas. And it's particularly unfortunate because there is a new booster for uh, for COVID, what's known as the bivalent vaccine, which targets not only the original strain, but also the, the newer Omicron uh, variant and, and a lot of the subvariants that are related to it. Uh, so the bivalent vaccine, very effective. Uh, and we're really encouraging everyone, particularly those at uh, highest risk, to to, to get vaccinated. Uh, the other, uh, as far as the flu, you know, every year our scientists uh, try and predict what are going to be the predominant uh, strains of flu that are circulating. Uh, and this year, it looks like they've done a really good job in in creating a vaccine that uh, that targets the the circulating strains. So. For both, for both influenza as well as COVID, there's effective vaccines that are available. Uh, and if you think about what can we do uh, as individuals to, to help stop the surge, we don't want to go back to universal masking, uh, uh, but getting vaccinated is, is certainly one of them. Uh, and even if we're not required to mask, uh, we uh, should certainly be thinking about that. Uh, particularly in, in high-risk uh, uh, settings, which are if if uh, all all three RSV, uh, influenza, COVID, they're all respiratory illnesses. So they're spread when we cough or talk or sneeze. So if you're in crowded indoor settings, uh, in businesses, in offices, uh, in schools, uh, in entertainment venues, these are all uh, great opportunities for viruses to spread. So wearing a well-fitting mask, such as a KN95, uh, in those settings is going to protect yourself uh, as well as others uh, and, your, and benefit your community. Mm. Dr. Zweifel, I can hear your concern for Fresno residents, and you anticipated my next question in terms of your message to them to stay safe and, and protect what you have described as a pretty vulnerable hospital system there. Is there anything you want to add before I let you go? Well, yes. Uh, so uh, we talked about steps that you can take if you're sick, uh, excuse me, that if you're healthy to 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 not get sick. But if you are sick, uh, or if you have a family member, or if you have a child who's sick, uh, there are things that you can do to self-manage as long as you don't have a chronic condition like diabetes or emphysema or, or heart failure. Uh, uh, and if you do get sick, uh, as long as you're tolerating fluids well, you're not short of breath, and you're keeping your fever below 101, you can attempt to, uh, to self-manage. Uh, as Dr. Pan mentioned, there are treatments available for, uh, for individuals, but the majority of individuals uh, can self-manage uh, uh, flu and uh, the other respiratory illnesses uh, at home. And so to lessen the burden on our, uh, uh, on our local hospitals, we really uh, encourage you to, to try and self-manage. Certainly contact your healthcare provider uh, uh, if, you are, uh, if you are feeling sick. Dr. John Zweifler, public health physician, Fresno County, thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, my pleasure. And I'd like to bring into the conversation now Dr. Peter Chin Hong, infectious disease specialist for UCSF Medical Center, who will also be with us for the remainder of the hour. Dr. Chin Hong, always glad to have you on. So, so great to be on, Mina. Thanks for having me. 
And also, listeners, if you have any questions about the illnesses you just heard about, RSV, the flu, COVID, or maybe you've been affected recently by either of these or even all three, we'd like to hear about it. You can call forum at KQE, uh, call forum at 866-733-6786. You can email us forum at kqed.org. You can post on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Dr. Chin Hong, I want to take each of these illnesses one at a time. I do want to start with RSV. It's good news from Dr. Pond that they believe it's peaking. I know that there were some thoughts that it was peaking, but then it kind of came back again. So we're still keeping an eye out for where RSV goes. But can you tell us why RSV rates are so high right now? What is the thinking about more kids than usual becoming infected? Well, the main issue, Mina, is that um, many of the kids who are most susceptible to serious disease from RSV, which is those under two years old, haven't had much exposure in the last two years. So that uh, puts them at risk for getting RSV for the first time, and that uh, might be a little bit more severe. The second reason, of course, is that we're all moving around more. It's winter time. People are indoors. This is a winter uh, virus, although it came earlier than expected and hit much harder. And the third reason, uh, you know, which is more aspirational, is we don't really have a good RSV vaccine yet, but the silver lining is there is one that probably will be approved in one year's time. Well, that is really nice to hear um, because I have known kids who have been hospitalized for RSV Really quickly, in terms of just the protection that kids don't have, one of the things that's also been pointed to is lower infection rates among pregnant adults in the last two years. And so kids haven't gotten necessarily the antibodies they need to fight it as well. Yes. So a lot of times uh, uh, kids get exposed in utero. So from antibodies that the mom has that travels across the placenta, or if that doesn't happen, Um, They get it through breast milk from the infected mom. So that's been invoked as another reason why this particular age group is more um, susceptible to infection because they don't have the protective antibodies from the mom. And that's particularly um, acute in those who are under six months old because that's when you're relying mostly on the mom's antibodies to protect yourself. And that's why we're hearing about uh, babies as well um, being hospitalized for this. It is infants, maybe under six months, that are particularly vulnerable? Yes. So those under six months are most vulnerable to severe illness. Um, It's still mainly an upper respiratory disease, so it's mainly a lot of secretions. And because their airways are so tiny, it doesn't take very much for them to compromise those airways. And a lot of times they just need suctioning out of those secretions. And what happens is that they get uh, ill and they don't eat and drink, um, don't make as much urine. So that leads to dehydration. So two of the most common therapies for babies with RSV is essentially respiratory support, either by suctioning vigorously and rehydration. Older adults, those over 65, can get more pneumonias, so lower respiratory infections, that can look just like influenza or, you know, regular community-acquired pneumonia. And they can also have a a poor time with RSV. 
Hmm. Because babies can't communicate maybe um, in words <laughs> what their symptoms are, what should parents be on the lookout for? So I think parents should be on the lookout for two main uh, buckets of symptoms. The first is problems breathing. And the issue with RSV is unlike influenza, which kind of hits you like a dump truck, it's instant, it's sudden, you get this uh, muscle aches all over. RSV is very insidious. It starts off like a cold, and in three to four days, so parents can look at the tempo, uh, the kid may have one of two things. One is problems breathing. They may um, have wheezing or using muscles that seem to be outside of the respiratory um, you know, lung wall because they're trying to use all the muscles they can to help themselves breathe. And the second bucket, of course, is dehydration. How might that look in a kid? They may be listless, uh, more fatigued, not eating, fussy, not sleeping. Um, but also, you can just look at the number of wet diapers per day. And usually, it might be six or eight. Um, and in this case, it might be less than two or three. Dr. Chinong, for parents with older kids, I've heard that some parents have interpreted the fact that they haven't been exposed to the kinds of viruses that they typically would be during the pandemic, meaning that it's actually better to expose them to those illnesses now to sort of, quote, boost their immune system. And they aren't really taking any extra steps to keep their kids from catching the cold. Is that a good idea? No, I'm very worried about that line of thinking, mainly because you don't know what you're going to get and you're playing virus roulette. And in the big scheme of things, um, our immune system is not weakened because of lower um, exposure to pathogens like viruses or out of practice. It actually still continues to be very agile. Um, and again, there's no evidence that being exposed to a virus actually helps you overall in terms of helping you um, detect and respond to other pathogens in the future. There's the most evidence, of course, for bacteria in the gut and that's what the microbiome is, but less for viruses and some for parasites. And that's been invoked as to why kids who grow up on farms probably don't have as much uh, allergies as uh, people who grow up in cities. And that's because of that hygiene hypothesis. But in terms of viruses, there's so many different viruses. Just take the cold, for example, 200 viruses. Being exposed to one doesn't mean that you're more protected against the 199 others. Yeah, and also, of course, there are vulnerable populations besides children, older adults, those who are immunocompromised, so the less disease that is floating around, the better. Why do some doctors say you don't need to test specifically for RSV? Well, because right now um, we, we're not sure how to deal with a positive um, result, just in general with mild illness. But if somebody is seriously ill or they're on the fence and they come to an urgent care or primary care physician's office or um, the emergency department or hospital, they will get tested. And right now, uh, every pretty much everyone's tested for RSV, COVID, and two types of flu, flu A and flu B. Well, Elizabeth writes, I've assumed my two teen girls are not at risk for RSV. They're in school and my parents are elderly. Any risk I should worry about? Yeah, so the insidious thing about RSV is that it feels like a cold for most people. In fact, uh, 
RSV is probably uh, very much more common than people think because we just think of it as one of the 200 viruses that cause colds. But in those under two years old and those over 65, that cold might be more severe. So again, no, for me, no cold is a good cold. I think preventing them is much better than figuring out what it might be, particularly the consequences in the very young and the very old. Well, let me go to caller Paula in Walnut Creek. Hi, Paula. Join us. Hi. Yeah, I, I was asking if um, if they could comment on the fact that we we heard a study recently that said that everybody, um, all the counties in California last year experienced over 40 days of poor air quality due to the fire and the smoke. And I was wondering if anybody has looked into that being a, a uh, part of the, the issue why this year the respiratory illnesses are so severe in this area. Hmm. Is there a connection, you think, this year, Dr. Chin Hong, in terms of poor air quality caused by fires, for example, and the severity of respiratory illnesses? Yes, there's actually good evidence for um, pollution and particulate matter 2.5 and lower, not in terms of only cardiac disease and brain disease that we know about, but also uh, for respiratory disease and specifically COVID, uh, asthma. And the risk is about twice um, when people have looked at uh, studies around that. And they've actually been studies in California looking at communities exposed to wildfire and more susceptibility even, you know, during our times of COVID. So it makes sense because it just causes inflammation in those airways and makes it more susceptible to get infected because the the immune cells are just trying to circulate around there and they uh, you know they're ineffective at really stopping um, those viruses from coming in. Paula, thank you for the question. Dr. Chin Hong, last month, California health officials reported the death of a five year old who was infected with RSV and the flu. I'm wondering if we should be particularly concerned this year about the combined impact of those two things. Yeah, so we don't really know what the trifecta is going to look like. Certainly in many seasons before COVID, we've seen people be infected with more than one uh, respiratory illness. But at this high level, I haven't really seen this uh, before in, in my career with all of these viruses at such high levels circulating. So it makes sense to me that some people are going to have two or three kinds of infections um, sometimes. But, you know, even in the thick of COVID, we haven't seen it at a high prevalence, but you are going to see more people get infected. We're not really sure why having one, uh, you know, is probably uh, results in less likelihood to have combined. But certainly that's happening, but it's not as common as people think. Let me go to caller Nancy in Berkeley. Hi, Nancy. You're on. Hi. Um, yes. Um, I am very upset that people are not masking inside. I mean, the people, they, they think COVID is over. It's very, very upsetting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm very um, thankful to the um, San Francisco Opera and Cal performances that are still requiring um, vaccination, um, vaccinations and masking in all their performances, and distressed at the 
San Francisco Symphony uh, is not doing that. And uh, I just do not understand people thinking that this pandemic is, is gone. Well, Nancy, um, thank you for sharing that. I think you're not alone. We had listener Ernst who writes, oh, my God, why can no public health person state the obvious wear a mask? Dr. Chin Hong, we heard earlier from Dr. Zweifler that the flu vaccine this year is effective. Besides that, would masking be, how effective would masking be with regard to transmission of the flu? Masking is really good for flu. It's even better than for COVID because flu travels on heavier droplets in general. So they get really stuck by the mask. Whereas if you don't really tie your mask properly, um, you know, you could get COVID coming in, um, you know, in very high concentrations in a non-secure mask. But nevertheless, um, you know, wearing a surgical mask alone will be great enough for flu. and, And, you know, I highly recommend it. And even though Dr. Zweifler pointed out, which is true, that the current flu vaccine does have types circulating now, which is H3N3 and H1N1, um, H3N3 is just kind of a, a little bit of a more um, serious or nasty flu in general. So it's not something that you'd want to try to get anyway, for sure. Mm, sure. What do you think are common misconceptions about the flu that you think are important for people to understand, especially about the flu this year? I think the common misconception about flu is that it doesn't um, cause as much serious disease as a cold, uh, but it might make you feel sicker, and that's not true. Um, Flu can cause up to 70,000 deaths a year, and right now we're seeing um, more flu uh, at this time of the year since... um, uh, 20, 2009 with H1N1. So, um, and, and it's accompanied by 20% fewer vaccinations at this time of the year. So I think we all need to take it a little bit seriously, not be afraid of it, but do all the best that we can to mitigate its effects and not get, not try not to get it. We're talking about the unusually high number of Californians who have respiratory illnesses this early uh, in the season, how to identify symptoms, protect ourselves. And we're taking your questions. Dr. Peter Chin Hong, an infectious disease specialist at UCSF Medical Center, is with us to do that. So stay with us, listeners. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 
Tomorrow on the show, we'll talk about where alternative meats are headed and whether they're good for us and the planet. Today, we're talking about the unusually high number of Californians with respiratory illnesses like RSV, flu, COVID, the effect that it's having on the state's healthcare system. And uh, we're talking with Dr. Peter Chin Hong of UCSF, infectious disease specialist at UC San Francisco Medical Center. And you, our listeners, are sharing your questions and concerns. Also, if you have recently been affected by RSV, the flu, COVID, maybe even all three, what has been the impact? How are you approaching your activities this holiday season? You can email forum at kqed.org. You can post on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, and you can call us 866-733-6786-866-733-6786. Let me go to Ami next in San Francisco. Hi, Ami, you're on. Yes, Hi. I'm calling, actually, my question might have been more for the public health officials, but maybe our guests can answer. Um, for the layperson, what is the best metric online for us to follow the uh, trends in COVID specifically? I've been mm. following the case rate per 100,000 in the various counties. I need to know this because I'm part of a chorus that uh, uses these metrics to help us decide to what level we should be protecting ourselves and testing ourselves. Um, is that the proper metric to be following? Are there others that are better available for the layperson? Mm, Ami, good question. Thanks. Dr. Chin Hong? That's a great question from Ami. There are several metrics to follow. Each of them have their pros and cons because everyone isn't getting tested officially anymore. So I think the the metrics that people have brought up already in the call include wastewater epidemiology, and it's the rate of increase uh, that's helpful. Uh, cases per 100,000, although that's, again, not as um, accurate, but you might look at the slope again. And to give you an example, LA uses a 10 per 100,000 uh, metric for cases in the community to trigger possibly a mass mandate with hospital capacity. And that's the other metric too, hospital capacity. Um, looking at something like 10% of beds due to COVID is helpful. But at the end of the day, there's no great metric. And probably the best summary metric is what you started off with, Mina, which is the CDC designation of communities at risk for severe influenza-like illness. Because at this time, COVID, RSV, the cold, influenza, they all begin looking very similarly and uh, people can get sequentially infected, even though I mentioned hard to get infected all at the same time, but it's sim simply like a back and forth all the time. So no one perfect measure. Um, but, you know, I, I certainly look at all these things like the weather report. Yeah, it's well, thanks for reminding us um, that entities also look at 10 per 100,000, because it's also hard to know at what threshold do you start to make certain Choices. I know that L.A. County, for example, is looking at that closely to see if they need to bring back an indoor mask mandate. Zoe writes, my husband and I have both gotten flu and COVID boosters this year and also wear masks inside in public. We still both got the flu last week and it knocked us out. Y'all need to wear your dang masks. That's uh, from Zoe there. And I can also say that uh, the flu shut down my kids preschool for two days. Every single teacher got it and the school called it unprecedented and they had to shut it down completely for that time. So it's certainly having a ripple effect. 
But Dr. Chin Hong, COVID is still killing far more people than the flu, 300 people per day in the U.S., according to the most recent data that I looked at. And then, of course, 90% of COVID deaths among those 65 and older. I'm wondering what you can tell us about the variants that are circulating now, um, because we're hearing things like they are more immune evasive, while at the same time hearing that we're unlikely to be hit as hard uh, from this mutation as we have from previous mutations. So help us make sense of this a little. Yes, definitely. So two big uh, important topics you brought up there, Mina. First of all, the issue of seniors. And I think to me, that's the thing that's keeping me up at night now is thinking about our elderly population. In the beginning of the pandemic, we saw an increase in deaths in the elderly population, like every of every 10 deaths, eight were above 65. Then vaccines came out in, you know, in the December, January of uh, 2020, 2021. And we rushed to have those seniors vaccinated. And the proportion of deaths to seniors went down to about six out of 10. But now what's happening is that we kind of lost that verb, that enthusiasm. And senior deaths are back to highest in ever in COVID uh, history, which is nine of every 10 deaths. And I'll tell you that more than 70% of these seniors, uh, of those who are vaccinated, have not gotten the booster. So it's not enough to just get the first two shots. You really have to get the booster. And if only 35% of those who are 65 have gotten the most recent booster, it definitely keeps me up at night. But but yeah, yeah so that's kind of like, you know, the, the one anxiety-provoking uh, thought that I had. Well... The other thing that I have read is that these new mutations are concerning also because they appear immune, I guess, for lack of a better word, to the monoclonal antibody treatments we've had. Yes. So just to come back to the variants now, you know, at the time when the FDA, uh, you know, requested the new booster formula or the cocktail, they asked for BA4 and BA5 and... At that point, it was thought to be avant-garde because BA4 and BA5 were just emerging. BA1 was out, which the UK, um, you know, bought. And um, but now it's BA5's children or Omicron grandchildren, which are BQ1, BQ1.1. That's causing about 65% of cases, and BA5 is now about 14% from 90%. So when people say immune invasive, it just means that. The antibodies you develop, say you got infected in the summer or early in the year, they probably wouldn't respond to as well to these new subvariants floating around. But at the same time, if your immune system has been reminded, uh, I would say three is a magic number at least. So a regular series plus a booster, um, you are very, very unlikely to be saddled with serious disease and going to the hospital. So you might get a breakthrough infection and you might mitigate that risk by wearing a mask or testing or uh, some of the, uh, these other strategies, ventilation. But uh, even if you didn't do all those things and you, you got an up-to-date on your vaccines, you, I'd be shocked if you went to the hospital. Hmm. Paxlovid is still effective against these new variants? Yes. So Paxlovid, Remdesivir, they're all spike protein independent. So you can make like the scariest looking variant in the lab or emerge, but these shut down the virus producing factory before the spike protein is made. So it doesn't really care what the spike protein looks at. Whereas 
monoclonal antibodies are antibodies made in a factory that are made like a lock and a key. So they only work for the spike protein that they engineered to work or neutralize. We're talking about COVID, flu, and RSV with Dr. Peter Chin Hong, infectious disease specialist at UCSF. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation, 866-733-6786, on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, and by emailing forum at kqed.org. Noah in Oakland. Hi, Noah. You're on. Uh, yes. Hi. Um, so we've we've heard about concerns related to RSV in, in young populations and in older populations. My question is about: Are there is there evidence for a particularly a particular concern or elevated risk for immunocompromised adults, um, and also for uh, pregnant women, uh, both in terms of the risk of the fetus um, and and also to the mother? Mm, Noah, thanks. Dr. That, Chin Hong? That's a great question from Noah. Um, immune-compromised individuals are definitely at risk uh, for RSV, uh, lower respiratory tract infection, or pneumonia. Um, but it tends to be like the very seriously immune-compromised of the immune-compromised. So, for example, those who have received a bone marrow transplant recently and have um, sort of graft-versus-host disease or more rejection, or those who have received a lung transplant And in those cases, even though we don't have good treatment for the general population, we do have a specific treatment that we use in the hospital for immune-compromised individuals with RSV, antivirals, something called um, ribavirin, and also immune globulin that we sometimes use. But for pregnant uh, persons, uh, they are definitely at risk for RSV um, and can cause, um, you know, uh, pr- uh, complications in pregnancy as well, but they also um, pass antibodies on to those developing fetuses that we had mentioned. And in fact, that population of pregnant people uh, is the the one study that has been released showing the vaccines. When you give it to uh, pregnant individuals, um, you pr- you reduce the risk of uh, RSV in the under six months old by as much as 85%, and you prevent as much as uh, 50% in terms of outpatient visits for those infants. So I think that is probably what you're going to see uh, in the next year or so, as well as a RSV vaccine for the older and immune compromised. Noah, thanks for the question. This listener tweets, what's the risk of long haulers with new COVID strains? Is it mostly in older people? That's a great question. I think we don't have enough information yet, but I think based on what we know about long COVID, we can hypothesize that, um, you know, if if uh, somebody, first of all, there are a few things that have been proven by the evidence to reduce the risk of long COVID. One is vaccination. One is even Paxlovid in a recent study in the in in the VA population. And they all work in the same way. So it makes me understand why these new variants, although you can get long COVID or chronic symptoms, are probably not going to be as potent as Delta or Alpha or some of the earlier variants. And that's because if you are, particularly if you've been vaccinated or if you take Paxlovid, it reduces the time that the virus is in the bloodstream. And we know from another study that one of the most um, powerful risk factors for long COVID is how long the virus sticks around in the bloodstream. So if you have an immune system that's revved up with 
of T cells and B cells, even though it doesn't, it lets the enemy in the front door, by the time it hits the bloodstream, that vaccinated person would kick it out. And also, even if you're not vaccinated and you take Paxlovid, it will kick it out. Turns out also with these new variants, because they're less likely to go inside the bloodstream because they're causing more sore throat and upper respiratory illness, they're probably going to be a little uh, less risky in terms of long COVID. So all of those things can mitigate it. We don't understand a lot about it, but that's what we know so far. We're talking with UC San Francisco's Dr. Peter Chin Hong, infectious disease specialist, about the infectious diseases or the respiratory illnesses that California is facing down right now, the triple demic of RSV, flu, and COVID. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Catherine writes, I want to know what the suggested protocol is for employees who call in sick with COVID. If they're feeling better but still testing positive, should they stay home? Or is it okay if they come in to the office if they are wearing a mask? That's a great question from Catherine. So it all depends on your workplace. For example, at UCSF, when I'm working with patients, if I have COVID, I have to stay home mandatorily for five days. And then if between day five, after day five, I can have an observed test at work. And if it's negative uh, by antigen test, I can come back in with a mask on because we all use masks. Other people do different things. Um, but at the end of the day, even at UCSF, after day 10, nobody checks uh, your virus anymore because we don't know what that means. So for people who continue to test positive after day 10, I don't think anybody knows what that means. Um, and I would probably not check after day 10 unless you're really living and cohabitating with very immune-compromised people who are unvaccinated. Well, the listener tweets, COVID is airborne and the vaccines do not prevent transmission. BQ1 and BQ11 are vaccine-evasive, promote Novavax and mucosal immunity. Uh, what, what do you think about that? I think it's a great point that, um, you know, we're probably not at the limit of how we can protect each other against COVID. Um, and some of the newer, I think it brings up the topic of what's in the pipeline. And mucosal immunity is using an additional, either an inhaler or an ointment that can sort of like add some uh, jamba boost to your smoothie, so to speak. Um, and that's, that's coming down the pike, potentially uh, universal COVID vaccines that might, or coronavirus vaccines that might help be more potent against uh, transmission uh, help. Uh, but but um, yes, we're not, we're, you know, the vaccines are spectacular and, and beyond our wildest dreams at preventing serious disease, but we still have uh, ways to go, I think, in terms of using an intervention or a therapeutic that might uh, for sure cut down me giving it to somebody else. Well, Leo writes, do we know how many colds and viruses circulate each fall? My kindergartner has been sick no less than seven times this fall so far, including currently. She was great at masking in preschool, so never got sick then. How many more illnesses can she get? Are we almost near the end or will this be indefinite? I think what happens in the winter is that, you know, people come indoors. Uh, it's easier to get things. And like I mentioned, there are more than there are 200 types of viruses that can cause a common cold. And even though we focus on the triple-demic of RSV, COVID, and influenza, they get a lot of press because they can cause uh, a lot of deaths. These common colds, they're in the background with a vengeance. So if you look at rhinovirus, for example, 
it's just as common as RSV uh, because we've been swap we've been checking all of those things at at UCSF too. So somebody, I think what ha- what's not appreciated is when you get one thing, it's hmm. still you still have risk for other things. So I think during the flu season or the respiratory virus season, it makes a sense. It makes sense when you're in a crowded setting to to protect yourself, even if you might have had COVID recently, for example. Well, Dr. Chinon, can I ask you what you are doing this holiday season in terms of risk mitigation measures or what you're asking at gatherings and so on? Yes, definitely. So, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm doing everything that I want to do. I'm not um, keeping myself at home or worried about things, but I'm um, trying to reduce risk as much as possible. So, um, you know, I carry around my mask um, in my pocket. Uh, I, I found a really nice KN95 that has different colors, so at least it makes things more interesting. And <laughs> I, I'm vaccinated and boosted. I got the new booster. I got the flu shot. Um, and then, you know, for family gatherings uh, in mixed company with elderly relatives and immune-compromised um, colleagues, I... You know, I've noticed that hosts started asking for tests before and sure they're not the be all and end all, but it does give you a snapshot of where you are at that point. And I'm happy to do that. I think when um, when it's nice weather, we try to meet outdoors as much as possible. And then when I'm darting into crowded Trader Joe's or Costco, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put on my mask uh, as well. But But if it's not crowded, I probably you know, feel okay if it's just a very quick visit. I'm not masking on the treadmill, um, you know, because it's hard for me, but my my gym has very large ceilings and, um, you know, I, I, I try to go at a very non-crowded uh, time of day. And then restaurants, I mask when I go in, but I don't mask at the table. On a plane, I definitely mask at boarding the plane and exiting the plane, but I feel, you know, generally okay depending on the level of flight, um, with taking my mask off to eat and drink, for example. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's always helpful to know what our infectious disease specialists are doing. Uh, Dr. Chin Hong, always appreciate having you on. Thanks so much, Mina. And to our, so do our listeners. We've gotten some comments just uh, talking about how much they appreciate you. Dr. Peter Chin Hong, UCSF Medical Center, infectious disease specialist there. Susie Britton produced today's segment. Thank you, listeners, as well for enriching our conversation today. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, The smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. 
Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts.